Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 38, part four in our Revolutionary War series. We're going to dive right back into it today, folks. Previously, we left off with General St. Ledger forming a siege around Fort Stanwix in central New York, where modern-day Rome is. He's together with a group of Native American warriors led by Joseph Brandt. Also, on the other side, we have the American forces trying to hold out, and a relief column led by General Herkimer is on its way to relieve the siege. Joining with him are several Oneida leaders and warriors. So we're going to pick things right back up, and we hope that you enjoy the show. So St. Ledger starts the siege, and he makes sure that this fort is totally encircled. Well, it's smart. If you completely surround it, you can make sure there aren't any messengers getting out and uh, sending for reinforcements, because they have other forts that aren't that far away. You could get reinforcements in a couple days if you get word that you need them. So they circle the whole thing and make sure that intelligence is cut off. Now... As the fort is starting, it's kind of at a standstill. Not much is going on. But there is this one very entrepreneuring guy. He's an Iroquois sniper named Kai. Have you heard about this guy, Caleb? I have. This is kind of the first time that you start to hear about riflemen and snipers. I I bet this might be one of the first times in history. In the early 1800s, a lot of the British start to put rifle regiments in, and they have people that are actually trained to shoot accurately. But at this time, a lot of people are still just trained in volley fire. They don't even have sights on their muskets. But this Indian Kai, he was a sniper. He had crack shot. Crack shot. He could he could hit a potato off a man's head at 300 yards. It's really ridiculous. So what he does is he climbs up in a tree loads his rifle, and he just hides in the leaves. It takes his time. You know, snipers don't just climb up and instantly start to pick somebody off. They'll see a person, and they'll watch them for a long time to see their movements. And when you have sentries on a fort, they kind of stagger, and he can count to the minute, to the second, when that sentry is going to return. So as they're walking along the ramparts or along a window, he'll just sit up there, hold his rifle up, Judge the wind, judge the distance, put his finger on the trigger, exhale, and shoot, and not miss. And then he would have his gun on a rope, lower it down, have the guy on the ground refill it for him, and send up a a new gun waiting. And every time after he'd taken two shots, he would climb down his tree and move positions, and climb up in another tree in full camouflage, and just do this all day long. After a couple days, he's already amassed seven or eight kills. This is starting to wear on the people inside the fort, and they think to themselves, all right, got to get rid of this sniper. Uh, anybody got a good idea? And uh, somebody steps up and says, I got an idea, and this, this is pretty funny. They're going to do the old dummy trick, like they do with all the snipers. You ever see Enemy at the Gate? Yes. You know, they put the guy's head up with the helmet and, and let him shoot at it and think that they got him. They make the scarecrow, and they start bouncing him up and down in the, in the scuttle hole. They know... At this point, the sniper moves after every second shot. He'll always shoot two times, try to kill two people, and then he'll switch trees. So they start bouncing the scarecrow up, and they watch for the first shot. They have everybody everybody with their little eyes peeping up under the ramparts, and they see the puff of smoke. The they It hits the scarecrow. They drop the scarecrow down, and they have somebody start going, oh, no, 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 Not Johnny, oh! Meanwhile, Kai's up in the tree laughing. 
But while Kai is laughing in the tree, a bunch of the privates and the sergeant are rolling over a cannon and they're sneaking it up with a little bush in front of it out one of the scuttle holes. And they load that cannon from top to bottom with grape shot and double load the thing. They pull the bush out of the way, they point it at the tree, and they just give all the trees a haircut for 100 yards. The limbs are falling, the tree, the trees are exploding, and leaves are flying everywhere, and everybody's just listening. And then all of a sudden, everybody's looking out, and they just see a body fall from the top of the trees with a big thump to the ground. And the whole fort just starts erupting in cheers, because everyone got to see it. We killed the sniper! <laughs> He'd killed eight men and they killed one, but it was a huge victory for them. And it really raised the spirits in the siege. And Joseph Brandt was irate because he was a good friend of Kai's. And he said, oh, kill them all. Back at Fort Dayton, General Herkimer has called in the militia and he's gotten about 800 men. These guys aren't particularly good at anything <laughs> other than being poorly trained farmers. They're mostly uh, German Palatines, aren't they, Andrew? Yes. But regardless, they're going to go help their brothers and sisters that are held up at this fort. So they set out on August 4th, and the column camps near the Oneida village of Oriska. Real quick side note, Caleb. The battle is called the Battle of Oriskany, right? Right. But this village is called Oriska. Do you know why it's called Oriskany? I just assumed it was a different uh, pronunciation of the same name. Nobody really knows, but they think this is what happened. Years later, when uh, people started sending mail, they think that people sent it to Oriska, New York, and they didn't put a big enough space on when they uh, sent it to the post office, so they sent it Oriska, NY. No kidding. <laughs> and so the official government, when they built the post office, designated it as Oriska, and the name kind of just stuck. We may say Oriskany, we may say Oriska, so just know that both are correct even though one is wrong, but now it's correct. So are we all clear on that? So they're camping at Oriskany, and there about 60 to 100 Oneida warriors decide to join and help Herkimer as they head to Stanwix. The leader of this group is a guy named Hanieri. I am like a super fan of Hanieri and his wife. Her name was Two Kettles Together. That evening... Herkimer sends three men forward to head to Fort Stanwix to deliver a message to Colonel Gansafort, telling him, we're on our way, we're sending help. If you could acknowledge that you got this message by sending out three cannon shots when we're getting close, and then as we're attacking, you send a diversion out of your fort at the same time, we can probably totally disrupt the whole British command and lines. Problem is, the three men that get sent out realize that the whole fort is totally encircled and when they get there they have to hide down in the bushes because they're literally standing like feet away from people hiding and they can't move until they disappear and if they just try running to the fort they'll most likely get shot people mistaking them for enemies they could basically get shot at both ends yes so they're stuck so on august 6 herkimer is just getting ready to break camp and he holds a war council. He hasn't yet heard about the signal from the fort yet, so he assumes that his messengers haven't made it. So he wants to wait until he gets confirmation that they know that he's coming. But his captains and colonels start pressing him to continue. 
they start calling him names and accusing him of being a Tory because his brother is serving with St. Ledger. And that's why he doesn't really want to attack. But Herkimer knew the area pretty well. He'd been living here for a while. And he knew that a lot of these battles are decided not actually lining up and fighting, but they're decided by ambushes. And he was really afraid that he might fall into an ambush. He probably heard that they have 800 Native Americans or even up to 1,500 Native American warriors. So he wants to play this thing safe. When it just becomes ridicule at first, he's able to tell his colonels to basically keep your mouth shut. But the problem is because this is a militia army, you don't have the same discipline as the commissioned army. Everybody's there kind of on their own free will. And once people start to suggest that you might be a Tory or a traitor, he was kind of felt like his honor demanded that, that he have his army march forward. Herkimer reluctantly gives the order and they start out marching. Now he is aware that ambushes could happen, so he decides to send some of his friends, the Oneida, to go forward and scout out the area, see what's going on. He figures these are Oneida, and we know that Iroquois people, as a rule, over the years, they may be on opposite sides of wars, but they don't attack each other. So he figures if he just sends out some Oneida to scout it out, even if they run into some Mohawk or Seneca people, they're not going to kill them. Maybe they'll just catch them and restrain them, but that way we don't have to risk anybody's blood. Even better, if they do find out there's people here, we'll know that an ambush is coming beforehand. Joseph Brandt has gotten word from his sister that Herkimer's on his way, and so he grabs almost a thousand men to haul butt and try and intercept them before they can get to Fort Stanwix. This is mainly Iroquois and other Native Americans in this force, but it's also reinforced by a few other British soldiers. And as Caleb mentioned, the classic trick and maneuver, which we've talked about in many of these battles, is to find a ravine to set up in to try and lay a trap for an ambush. They know that there's a little bridge and a little road that goes into a creek near Oriska. They are perfectly covered. They've got the ridge lines on both sides, and then others are down low, hiding in the bushes and the tall ferns and grass and leaves. Brant sees some Oneida scouts coming in, and he's thinking to himself, crap. Brant knows that, you know, you're not supposed to fight your brothers. We mentioned back in our French and Indian War episode, right, Cale, that we talked about one of the guys that some Canadian Mohawks were fighting against, some British allied Mohawks, and they called out to him, warning, it's a trap, it's a trap. And the guy ended up getting killed anyway, but they tried to at least warn them to get out of the way and not caught in the crosshairs. But this is where Brant makes a decision that affects the entire Confederacy, and he orders that the Oneida be killed because he sees that they stop and start looking around and suspect that there's people there. And he realizes that if we don't kill them, they're going to know that we're here and they're going to tell Herkimer. But he tells everybody, we got to do this real quiet. They sneak down, he gives the command, and all of a sudden there's a barrage of arrows that rain down. And then other people come out from the grass and they stab and tomahawk all six of them. Like a spy movie, they grab the bodies and pull them away and hide them. A little bit later, at 9 a.m., the start of Herkimer's column enters the ravine. They're totally oblivious to what's going on. They haven't seen their Oneida scouts, but they assume that that means that everything's okay and they're just going further ahead. They're waiting for the greater force of the army to get through. Brant doesn't want to attack them right away. He wants them to get about halfway through 
get them disoriented into a panic. And everybody's like, now? He's like, not yet. And they're like, now? Not yet. Like, now? And he finally stands up and he gives the command, Susquehan. And then volleys of arrows and bullets range down upon the colonials. People come running out from the brush, lay into people with tomahawks and knives. Snipers from up in the trees start picking off the men. The arrows that they were firing, Caleb, had a double amount of potency. Do you know why? Because they were poisoned? Yes. Not poisoned like it's instantly going to hit you and you convulse and die. Poisoned like they would take the arrows and they would dip them into fecal matter. And that way, even if you grazed somebody or got somebody in the elbow, it wasn't a mortal wound. But the hope was that with all that disgusting stuff on there, it would cause an infection that would eventually kill you a while later. Herkimer is caught up in all this mess, and he has his horse shot out from underneath him. And then as he falls off, he gets shot right below his left knee. Herkimer, to his credit, doesn't totally panic. He orders his men, we got to get out of this ravine. Everybody get up on that hill and defend yourselves. He's staggering, and people have to carry him up. And of course, we mentioned that Native allies know that you go for the officers first because that's what throws everybody else into confusion. A lot of his colonels, Caleb, the ones that had egged him on to go into this ravine, they're the ones that are taken out first by sniper fire. Once they get to the top of the hill, Herkimer is propped up with his back against a beech tree. And Herkimer says, okay, 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 okay. Like, All right, here's what we're going to do. He starts commanding orders. And he gets his little smoke pipe out from his pocket and he lights it up and starts puffing away. And he's just like, you go here, you go here, you go here, you get this. And he's just got a sword in his hand, bleeding from the leg. Some of his men drop their weapons and start to run back, just like what happened at Braddock's defeat. As they're going, they're bumping into their own members of the column and that's just making things worse. But the amazing thing, Andrew, is that the majority of them stayed and fought tooth and nail and they pushed their way up to the top of the ravine and pushed all of the sneak attack warriors out and they fought and they fought and they fought and then this sneak attack which had horrible casualties on Herkimer's forces now all of a sudden is starting to really panic the larger force that surprised them. So as Brant's forces are driving into them, and they're fighting with everything, Caleb, not only tomahawks and stabbing with bayonets and guns and arrows, but some people literally, when their stuff is spent, are grabbing each other and literally choking each other to death. Thomas Spencer, we had mentioned that's the Oneida guy that had helped relay reconnaissance messages beforehand. He gets caught in a one-on-one battle with William Johnson's half-Native American son. The irony is just amazing. And Thomas Johnson ends up getting killed by him. Other Seneca leaders like Ginsu Guato are also killed. And as this is going on, Red Jacket, who we mentioned is just like a kid, 18 years old, he sees the fighting and the bloodshed, and he gets what we would call today shell-shocked at the carnage. And he turns his back and he gets the heck out of Dodge. Fighting and dying for the British is not for him. And cursing Brant as he went, he went all the way back to Seneca territory. Herkimer continued to form his defensive position. And like I said, they were starting to hold their own and even kind of push push the attackers back. Lieutenant Hare of the Cayuga was killed by a folly of bullets. Gisugato and uh, Chief Sengarata were also captured and killed. 
Uh, Colonel Campbell, who's the one colonel I think left in this whole thing, is engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fighting. And Colonel Campbell was a real, he was like one of Hanieri's closest friends. And Hanieri is here, as we mentioned before, with his wife, two cuddles together. And he sees that almost every single warrior is trying to kill Campbell. Like, literally, we're going to see like almost a dozen people come at him at different points during this battle. One warrior charges towards him, and Campbell takes out his sword and almost severs his head by implanting it. And Hanieri's running in, trying to help him, and then two more enemy people are coming in, and Hanieri kills both of them. And when we talk about his wife, two kettles together, Caleb, they're also there with their adult son. She's not taking a back seat either. She's totally in this fighting with her husband. As he kills one man with a tomahawk, and then he stabs another in the gut, he walks over to see how Campbell's doing, and then she finishes him off by burying a hatchet in his head. As the battle's going on, she's riding on horseback. She's got a rifle on her arm and a tomahawk in her other hand, and so she's shooting and flinging her tomahawk at people's heads as she rides along. I'm just picturing Xena, warrior princess. It really is. And not only that, she's able to shoot and reload while she's riding and running, which it's not like putting a single cartridge in and reloading. This is where you bite the piece off and stick the wad down and the powder and the musket ball and everything. Now, Andrew, if they made this into a movie and this was happening, I would just think to myself, there's Hollywood for you, you know... They got to have a token woman warrior that's really good and somehow manages to defeat all the bigger, stronger guys. And uh, she always is the one that's victorious, and I would just brush it off. But seeing all the documentation of all the people saying that they saw this just amazes me that this hasn't become a movie. Hanieri sees another large Mohawk man creeping closer, trying to get at Campbell. It's like, what is up? I mean, they obviously see that the guy's a colonel, but it's like, come on, give us a break. They probably wanted his sword. The sword was pretty nice back then. Yeri pretends to fall down and be shot. He totally collapses, and he lays on the ground motionless. As this Mohawk guy comes up again, Campbell is engaged in other fighting, so he doesn't see what's going on behind him. He's getting ready with his tomahawk in the hand to kill him. And Yeri, lying on the ground, grabs the guy's leg, tripping him. And then he springs up, grabs the tomahawk that's laying on the side, and drives it into his spine, paralyzing him. And he pulls it out and bashes it in his skull. But then, Han Yeri really does get hit. A musket ball comes whizzing across, and it hits him right in the wrist. And so it's not a mortal wound, but your hand is totally useless now. And so his wife comes over to his aid. It's not even like they have a second to stop or anything. And she tosses him her rifle. And then he starts firing with his good hand and then using the other hand to prop it up. And whenever he fired, he would toss it back to her and she would reload it for him. In addition to that, while she's keeping people at bay, she's also got her tomahawk, but then in her belt, she has dual pistols strapped. And so she would of just... Of course she does. Of course. Dual, not one, dual pistols. And so she's firing out on the side if anybody comes up. And meanwhile, blood is just cascading down the hill. And by this time, the whole stream is turning red. And then at 11 a.m., so we're two hours into this thing already, a huge thunderstorm comes through and it starts pouring. And that pretty much stalls the fighting. During this respite, both sides try to regroup. As the pouring rain's going on, Brant sends people back to St. Ledger asking for reinforcements. 
a group of rangers start hauling butt to try and get there to reinforce. These are called uh, butler's rangers. And some of them get the idea and they say, you know, we're rangers and we've got these green jackets on, but if we turn them inside out, we kind of, the inside stitching kind of looks like we'd be colonial soldiers. So they decide to have their front group of rangers do this. And as they're showing up, Herkimer's forces think, oh good, it's the group from Fort Stanwix coming out to help reinforce us. And the one guy goes up to give him a handshake saying, thanks for coming to help us. And they grab him, pull him back and capture him. Herkimer realizes what's wrong and says, that's not our guy, start firing at him. His own men start saying, no, no, we can't, we're killing our own men, we can't do that. But then they see that there's a group of greencoats behind them and they realize that they're British Rangers and the fighting starts breaking out again intensely. But Brant is getting really discouraged. He's seen a lot of death. Uh, Tomahawk has almost come out and planted itself in his head. He's been shot at and had to duck down. He's lost numerous people he knows. A lot of his warriors start complaining, saying, they said they'd keep us out of the fighting. We're in the midst of the bloodiest part of this uh, blasted war. And so some of them saying, we're out of here. And as Brant starts to see people trickling away, he realizes that, you know what? We need to pull back before more of our men get killed. And so he finally gives the command, Una, Una. And as he belts that out, all of his forces begin to withdraw. And at the same time, Herkimer is starting to uh, yell the English equivalent, Retreat! Retreat! It, he, did, he did do it calmly and without panic. And he made sure that no one was left behind. Herkimer told everyone to leave him there. Remember, he's got, he took a musket ball below his knee. And he wanted to make sure that he's not going to leave until every single wounded person has been evacuated. So for over six hours, he sat propped up by that birch tree. And uh, he just continued to command without even taking a step just from leaning up against the tree. The Oneida people who had fought side by side and honestly helped the Americans hold their ground here, they also retreat, but they don't just go straight home. They surround the column of wounded soldiers and, again, scout ahead to the sides to make sure that there's no other ambush set up for them as they retreat back to Fort Dalton. Now, when the British forces return to Oriskany, they arrive at a camp that had been stripped. Now, if you remember, we've got a messenger hiding in the grass trying to get into Fort Stanwyck to tell Gansevoort what's going on and that Herkimer wants him to send out a small raiding party as a distraction. Well, seeing that Butler's Rangers take off, the men finally see a hole that they can punch their way through. And so one guy gets through, he stands up, and he just starts running. He's got his gun, but he's holding it straight up, showing that he's no threat. And then he hears musket balls start whizzing by him because they're shooting at him, trying to get at him before he can get in the fort. And then he hears musket balls going over his head the opposite direction because the people at the fort are doing covering fire. And they open the door a crack and he runs in and tells them everything that's going on. And Gansevoort hears the idea and he says, let's do it. A couple hours later, he gets a bunch of men together and they sally out. And their goal is to just 
create havoc. And they pretty much attacked the unoccupied camps, mainly the Mohawks, Seneca, and other Native American places and Butler's Ranges, pretty much every place that didn't have anybody there. There were a few stragglers behind, some people that had come back from the battle and were exhausted and taking naps, and they were killed in their sleep. John Johnson, William Johnson's son, he escapes barely with his life as he goes. They capture letters, all kinds of uh, blankets and other supplies. And when we say blankets, you're thinking, what the heck, blankets? Well, these blankets are what the Native Americans used to sleep on during the cold summer nights. So it is a big deal. When St. Ledger hears of this raid that's going on, he pulls all the men that he was going to send to reinforce over to Brant back to make sure that they take care of this. But when the British forces return from Oriskany, Andrew, they arrive at the camp and they find that all of their personal possessions are gone. All these Indians who were promised all this plunder and uh, an easy, safe campaign have not only not gotten any treasures, but they've lost all their personal belongings. A lot of them are suffering from PTSD, from seeing their friends killed and shot up. And this is really pissing the natives off yeah they were told that they would not fight at all and that saint ledger's force will do most of the fighting you guys just need to sit back do some more whoops smoke they even complained that the tobacco they were given was of a shall we say a sucky quality (laughs) but saint ledger sees that herkimer's forces are forced to retreat so he's thinking to himself well it's all right we got this he asks gansevoort for a surrender and what does gansevoort do He, once again, won't even open the letter and says, We fight. The next day, St. Ledger sends in a third surrender demand. And in the letter, he says that, falsely, and we'll get to this in our next episode, that Burgoyne has been totally successful. He's already in Albany. And that if you guys don't surrender, he's going to unleash his native allies and they're going to massacre the entire garrison. And then when they're done with that, they're going to go into the Mohawk Valley and they're going to attack their homes and communities and kill their families. Man, St. Ledger, you're a jerk. And again, Gansevoort doesn't even look at the letter, but his lieutenant, Colonel Willett, does give him a response. By your uniform, you are British officers. Therefore, let me tell you that the message you have brought is a degrading one for a British officer to send and by no means reputable for a British officer to carry. St. Ledger was, as the British say, cross. He ordered an all-night bombardment with his artillery pieces on the fort. Yeah, but he's only got four of them, and it's like two five-pounders and two three-pounders, right? Yeah, it was practically non-effective because Fort Stanwix is, it's not just wood, it's reinforced by these huge mounds of dirt built into the logs that go across. So it really does nothing. The siege goes on for a, a couple weeks, But then Benedict Arnold shows up in the Mohawk Valley. He hears what's going on with Herkimer, and his job is to send another relief force to try and take Fort Stanwix. But Benedict Arnold isn't able to recruit much of anybody. He just gets a few hundred people. A lot of these guys that had already gone were wounded or too afraid to go back or dead. Arnold comes up with a sneaky and diabolical plan. Not everybody in the Mohawk Valley was a patriot, and not everybody was a Tory. Some people were in between, but a lot of people were very staunch Tories, and a lot of these families were very split. The Schuylers and the Herkimers had people in both families that were staunch loyalists. And Benedict Arnold's wife's family were staunch loyalists. 
we're going to talk about a guy named Han Yost Schuyler. And he was the son of Peter Schuyler and Elizabeth Herkimer. So his mother is the sister of Johann Herkimer. So that makes the Herkimers and the Schuylers, they're like cousins, kind of, sort of. It's, it's all complicated, whatever. Uh, Han Yost was a bit of a simpleton. People think that, you know, some people say he was maybe mentally ill or kind of unbalanced or maybe dim-witted. He doesn't seem totally dim-witted because he obviously shows a lot of guile in the things that he does. So he's quite shrewd. The Mohawk people that he lived around thought that he was quite special and he often visited their villages and was great friends with most of them. And they kind of saw him as kind of like a very spiritually connected person with nature based on the dreams that he would tell them about and the different uh, psychedelic visions that he would have. Again, he was a huge loyalist, but at a gathering of different spies at a local tavern, he and a whole bunch of other people are captured, including uh, John Butler's son, the guy that headed the ranger department, Walter Butler, and they are sentenced to be hanged as traitors. But remember, Han Yost is related to all these guys, so his mother and brother come in and start pleading with General Arnold, saying, oh, uh, my little boy, he just got caught up in this war, and it's those darn Mohawks and Tories for trying to get him involved. What can we do? Could you please let him go? And this is where Arnold gets his idea. He's like, yeah, I'll let him go on one condition. Here's what I want. You're going to go back to St. Ledger's camp, and you're going to tell him that I'm on my way. He's like, what? You want me to tell him that you're on his way? Why would you want me to do that? He's like, you're going to tell him I'm on my way, and that Burgoyne has been defeated and has got his tail between his legs heading back to Canada and that I'm coming with thousands and thousands of men to take back Fort Stanwix, tell St. Ledger that he better run. So we can see here Arnold doing the exact same thing that St. Ledger was trying to do to Gansevoort, lying. Burgoyne had not been defeated yet at this point and Arnold only had a few hundred people. Hanyo's mother offered to let herself be a hostage while this mission was going on. But Arnold said, no way, lady, you don't care about yourself. You only care about your son. I want your other son as collateral. If he returns and does well, then we'll talk. They got to make this story believable, right, Caleb? So they go to a few extremes to uh, make the situation seem like it's legit. Yeah, they basically try to set it up like Hanyo's escapes, right? Yes, because people know that he's been captured at this uh, loyalist gathering. And you can't really trust somebody that's been captured and then set loose. It's like uh, whenever you see the, the guy in your gang that gets arrested and then he's out two weeks later, you know that he's snitched. You don't want to give the impression that this guy is snitched and his turned coat and is working for you now. So they set up a, kind of a, a funny way where he gets off the scaffold and they shoot some holes through his shirt and he puts them back on and he runs out and it makes it look like he escaped the firing squad. And it wasn't too crazy to think because, you know, there weren't prisons at the time. They were just holding them in a room. And Butler, the other guy that had been captured with him and sentenced to death, he actually escaped himself and made it back. But Arnold makes sure that, again, Hanyos doesn't lie and he sends a couple Oneida people to shadow him to make sure that he holds up his end of the bargain. He doesn't send them together, but he has them shadow him as he goes. And this way, both groups will arrive at different times, so it doesn't seem like that they're poking him in the back. 
So when Hanyost finally makes it to Stanwick's, he does his part. He starts going around and increasing the estimates. Burgoyne's been defeated and Benedict Arnold's on his way. He's coming with a host of men. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. They've got other people and oh, we got to get out of here. And some of the native people who know him think he's a trustworthy guy. They say, well, well, how many people are coming? Do you know? Do you have any idea? And he points up into the sky and he points at the trees and he says, as many as the leaves of these trees are the soldiers that are on their way with Benedict Arnold. And so the Native Americans start thinking to themselves, we have been totally set through the meat grinder here. So many of our people have died. Very few British people have died. And now there's an American force coming this way. We're done. We're going home. No way, man. Now, St. Ledger, he, he sees that there's a little bit of panic going on. So he decides to hold a council. And when he gets everybody together, they do a head count. And within this short amount of time, 200 of his Indians have already abandoned the camp. And he's got actual chiefs here remaining in the council fire. And they start bringing up their grievances. They start saying that, you know, siege warfare is not for us. We had all our equipment stolen. And if you don't lift this siege, we're out of here. So St. Ledger, as he sees that people start panicking and run, he finally gives the order. And on August 22nd, St. Ledger breaks camp and begins trekking back down to Lake Oneida to return by way of Lake Ontario. But that's not even the worst thing. As they go, not all, but some of the native allies that are with them turn on some of the stragglers and say, well, I'm getting something out of this. And they... There's random cases where some people get stabbed in the back by tomahawks, scalped, and have their stuff stolen off them by their own allied forces. Now, Andrew, let's talk about the aftermath to this, because it seems like to me, okay, some British forces came from Niagara to Stanwix, didn't really accomplish anything, and turned back. Meanwhile, you got Herkimer, his forces come forward, get ambushed, kind of get weakened, and then they turn back. It doesn't really seem like anything big happened here, but you've got to kind of read through the lines and dig a little bit to see how this gets a lot of things set in motion and how it's going to affect the rest of the Northern Campaign throughout the American Revolution. That's right, because Burgoyne thinks that there's two other armies marching towards Albany to help him. And we'll talk next time about what happens with Burgoyne and what happens from New York City. But this whole thing has to turn around and come back. And so now Burgoyne has no reinforcements coming from one side. The Americans get a huge tactical victory. So many of the Native Americans that are here are totally demoralized for the rest of the year. Meanwhile, Americans realize that as this war happened that they can't trust the British at all. Some people that were on the fence totally go into the Patriot camp now, realizing that they threatened to sick the Senecas on us and kill all our families? What's up with that, man? And unfortunately, this adds to another level of hating on the Native Americans. The huger aftermath out of all of this is that this starts an Iroquois civil war. You had Oneida and Mohawk and Seneca fighting against one another. In the future, we're going to unfortunately have to talk about Brant is going to order the burning and massacre of Oneida villages with his own warriors. And Oneida people are going to retaliate against Mohawk people. It's really not a win for anybody. This is going to collapse the Six Nations as a dominant power. And it's going to get a lot sadder before it gets better. 
we do have um, some quotes from the perspective of the Seneca as they return. Mary Jemison was a woman that was captured in the French and Indian War and raised by Seneca, and she was a kind of influential woman out at Oldbeardstown. And she said this, Previous to the Battle of Fort Stanwix, the British sent for the Seneca to come see them whip the rebels. At the same time, they stated that they did not wish to have to join them to fight, but just wanted them to sit down and smoke pipes and look on. Our Indians went to a man, but contrary to their expectations, instead of smoking and looking on, they were obliged to fight for their lives, and in the end were completely beaten. A great loss. Our Indians alone had 36 killed and a great number wounded. Our town exhibited a scene of sorrow and distress when our warriors returned and recounted their misfortunes and stated the real loss they had sustained in the engagement was the loss of their friends. The mourning was excessive and expressed by the most doleful yells, shrieks and howlings, and by imitable gesticulations. So it's not like everybody just goes home. People go home and some people don't go home. These idealistic young men, they were just in it to get a few trade goods. When you lose 36 people, I mean, this is Mary Jemison talking about her one town. They lost 36 people. That's a huge number. Think of your small town if you're from a rural community of a few hundred people and 36 people don't come back. How big is that for you? And on the flip side, you had British people that were going home or not going home and Americans that were coming back in coffins or just left out to the vultures or buried in shallow graves that were unmarked because they were afraid that they would be dug up and looted and mutilated. This is a horrible piece of American history, yet we see a lot of bravery shining through in it. General Herkimer is able to make it home, but unfortunately, the wound continues to fester, and after 10 days, the doctor decides that they're going to have to amputate the lower part of it. Unfortunately, the surgeon was not very experienced, and even after the amputation, Herkimer continued to grow weaker and weaker. Finally, with his family gathered round and his wife at his side, he called for his Bible, and he opened his Psalm 38, and he began to read this. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs and my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, even that has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand far off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they devise treachery all day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear, and I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer 
O Lord, my God. Herkimer doesn't make it through the whole chapter. He slowly drifts off, stops speaking. The Bible falls from his hand, and he passes on into eternity and legend. I'd invite all of you to come back and join us uh, next time. If you're just new to our show, we only ask a few things. If you're curious about anything, go ahead and try and get in touch with us. We're on Twitter with the handle at Iroquois History. We have a Facebook page. We also have a website, longhousepodcast.com. Also, Andrew and I have revived the ancient extinct wild sweet potato clan. And uh, we would like to invite you to join us in this clan. Uh, all of, There's many of us. Uh, we are a large and growing clan. And all you have to do to join is leave us a positive iTunes review. And uh, we will mark your name down on our website as a, a fellow clan member. We hope that you continue to stick around through this series. I've learned so much. It's just amazing how much the Oneida help the American colonial army through this. And they're going to do a lot more in the future. And this is just one instance where they possibly save the war for the Americans. And they're going to do it again in another situation. So thank you, everyone. Until next time, we say goodbye. Bye, everybody.